Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 21. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, or any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land your Lord, the Lord your God, is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. If you want, yeah. Well, good morning. It's fun to be here. I always enjoy coming. Uh, fun to be here on a day where you haven't barricaded the entire church uh, for the sake of the Orange County Marathon. I just drove into the parking lot. It was pretty cool. Um, didn't get a scenic tour of South Orange County or anything. So anyhow, it's uh, fun to be here, uh, and I'm looking forward to kind of picking up on the uh, uh, sermon series, which, as I understand it, uh, at least the first half of the Ten Commandments were in view uh, last week, and I'm kind of picking up on the on the second half of those. The the uh, commandments are often viewed as divided into the two tablets. Uh, so the first tablet would correspond to New Testament language with ways that we love the Lord our God, and the second tablet would be ways that we love our neighbors ourselves, roughly speaking. And so we have those two divisions, and this is a natural way to, to split this uh, batch of commandments up. So anyhow, that, that's what we'll be looking at today, and I want to talk about the relationship between the commandments and the gospel. Um, and it's a really important, interesting, and intriguing sort of a question that's probably a little bit more of a, I mean, this is a 2,000 year battle within the church to figure out how to keep these things together. So I don't want you to think this is just a little issue we have for us now. This is kind of a big picture deal. So let me begin by kind of telling a story of an experience I had when I was uh, just out of college. I uh, went to Micronesia, spent a year there, 
And you, you find they have all kinds of interesting things that they do for handicrafts there. Of course, you have seashells and things like that because it's that kind of a place. Um, they also did interesting things with coconuts. So coconuts are like big, right? So they, take, they would take a coconut and they would actually carve the coconut around so it looked like a coconut tree. And I have a picture of this. If you could put the picture up there. Um, it's a really interesting sort of a thing. So for those who are unfamiliar with coconuts, the thing on the left is what a coconut actually looks like when you're, when you're like seeing a coconut on the coconut tree. I know when you go to Ralph's, it's brown and hairy. But lurking underneath all that green is a piece of brown and hairy, but it comes on a coconut tree wrapped in this great big green husk. And what they would do is they'd take their knife out, cut the husk off, and uh, the brown shell on the inside, if you look at it carefully, see, they have carved that shell out so the entire uh, coconut now looks like it's an actual coconut tree. It has the little fronds carved out and all of those kinds of details. It's pretty darn cool. And you can imagine how wild you could go with this thing and say, hey, that's great, but hey, what if we kept like the green part on the top and the bottom, you know, carve it out, make the tree in the middle, but then you take like the green things and you carve them into little palm fronds, and then the bottom ones you slice up like little bits of grass on the beach, and then you got like the palm tree sitting on the beach with little fronds on top, and you know, this thing can just go crazy because you're like, wow, you're capturing the idea of how can I make this coconut look like a coconut tree. Newsflash. If you want a coconut to look like a coconut tree, you know the best way to do that? Plant the coconut! Ha! Is that crazy or what? Coconuts are actually coconut tree seeds. And if you want the coconut to look like a coconut tree, here's the plan. Let me give you a couple pictures here. That's what a coconut tree looks like. You can see the coconuts up top. That's a pine tree. And go ahead to the next one. Boom! There's a sprouted coconut. It's going to become a coconut tree. Is that crazy or what? And the best part is that kind of a coconut tree keeps producing coconuts. You can make a coconut factory if you make it that way. The other one is just a dead coconut carved up to look like it's a coconut tree. Now, you're probably sitting here wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the Ten Commandments? And who is this guy that they brought in? Is he selling coconuts afterwards? What's the plan here? So let me just tease my line of thought out just a little bit. This whole idea that you take some pre-existing thing and make it look like what it might be. I'm going to take the coconut that's here and make it look like the coconut tree that it could be. I would like to point out that a lot of times we do that same sort of thing with ourselves in the Christian life. We look at ourselves and feel like, hey, I'm supposed to look like Jesus. What do I do? We try to carve ourselves into the shape of Jesus. And commandments are one of the most common vehicles that we use for doing that. We say, oh, I've got all this turmoil and pot of desires in me, but I need to follow the commandments. So you look at all the rules and the commandments, and you try and carve your soul into the shape of the commandments, thinking that somehow that will actually make you the person you're supposed to be. It will make you somehow wonderfully look like Jesus. And usually what happens, by the way, uh, the pictures are gone, but you can easily imagine carving that coconut to look like the coconut tree that is not an easy job. Have you ever tried to carve a coconut? Like with a knife from your kitchen? 
I mean, it ends up ugly. Not only does it end up not looking like a coconut tree, but usually there's blood involved before you're done because you can't really carve. I don't know how they do that. There's a ton of skills. So what happens when we begin to try and carve ourselves into the shape of Jesus, we discover that it often doesn't work. I'm not really looking like Jesus. I'm not feeling it. And we think, all I need to do is become a better carver. Let me buy some fancy knives. Let me go to the right retreat. Let me do whatever it is you think you've got to do. And you keep carving and you keep being kind of gnawing feeling that somehow you're not becoming what you were meant to become. You end up looking carved and just a little bit silly and sometimes downright bloody. And let me just point out that that is exactly what the gospel tells you would happen if you try to make yourself into Jesus. And here's what the gospel says. It says that Christians can't be carved. They have to be grown. And if you want to make yourself into Christ, you do it the way you do it with the coconut. You plant it. Because unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it does fall into the ground and die, then it will erupt into life and bear much fruit. The vision of the gospel is exactly the idea of God has somehow made you born again. He's taken the seed, fertilizer, whatever you do to a coconut, I don't know, um, but somehow you make that coconut ready to be the seed that you just drop in and plant and out comes the coconut tree that automatically looks like the coconut carved thing because it just is made to be a tree. The essence of the gospel is that's what's happened in your heart when you were born again. And there's no amount of carving that will do. The point of the gospel is that we, we will never be saved by having a therapist or something like that. We'll be saved by, in effect, dying to self and being born again. We don't need a life coach. We need a heart transplant where our old heart of stone is cut out and a new heart of flesh is transplanted in. Um, we don't need to be pressed into the mold of the law. We don't get carved into that shape, but rather we become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we've been committed. We find because the seed of Jesus has been planted in us, when we allow it to germinate, we desire to do the very things that the law would otherwise command us to do. We find ourselves intrinsically shaped into being what God has called us to be because that simply is who we were born again to be. And of course, if you tease this analogy out, you realize in effect what I'm saying a non-Christian, a person who has not been born again, isn't a coconut in that sense. Or perhaps better, I'm still trying to figure out how you pollinate a coconut tree and I don't even want to know the details. But anyhow, in some sense, it's like the, uh, the non-Christian is the coconut that hasn't been fertilized. It isn't ready to actually sprout. The job isn't done. It hasn't been born again, so to speak. So it can actually sprout and bear the fruit that is in keeping with being a coconut. So the only thing the non-Christian person can do is exactly carve themselves into Christ-likeness. 
to try and do those things and hope that somehow they can carve well enough to suddenly become a tree. But of course, once we've framed the metaphor this way, you realize there's no amount of carving that will make you a tree. <laughs> All that will happen is that there's smaller and smaller pieces of coconut left. But there's no amount of carving that will ever turn the coconut into a coconut tree. There's only planting that will accomplish that. And that's the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Christ crucified and resurrected so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the story of the gospel. And notice how different that is in terms of the function that a commandment has than the carving vision. The commandments somehow become the template by which we carve and chop and whittle away. Whereas in this story, you drop the coconut in and the commandments are simply in some sense a foretaste of what you anticipate will grow out of that rich and fertile soil into which this seed has been planted. That kind of changes everything when you think about the commandments. It sounds simple when we're talking about coconuts. Apparently, it's not that simple when we're talking about human beings and about Christians. And so let me take a little bit of time. I, I tell you right now, if we could just get that one thought clear in our minds, that the point of this is that I die to self and live to Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, who him who lives in me. If we had that one seed clearly planted in our mind and allowed it to grow, I'd be happy to fold up my Bible and head out the door right now. But teasing that out in our lives is a little bit more difficult than that. So let me take a few seconds to just unpack this thought just a little bit more and think about how we could do this kind of in a practical sense in our life. So let me begin by making a few more comments about the Ten Commandments themselves. Um, when you do a series on the Ten Commandments, um, I've, you know, I've preached sermons on Ten Commandments before. You know, th these aren't the kind of things like, Whoa, did you see this right here? There's Ten Commandments. Who knew? It's not that kind of a thing. This is one of those things that we have thought about a lot. Um, but when you get a list of the commands like this, it's very easy and often actually very fruitful and interesting to go through the commandments one at a time and not just unpack what's there on the surface, but what lies underneath it. And that's a wonderfully valuable and, and, and terrific exercise. Huge fan of that. That said, when they hand me six commandments, I'm assuming that wasn't the plan. So I'm going to be talking about these a little bit more as a group in a package rather than trying to unpack every one of these in the next, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. Um, that said, a couple of big picture notes then about the commandments and what function they're designed to serve in their original context and then how they relate to us now. Uh, the first thing you want to notice about the commandments is actually comes from a part of the passage we didn't read. So Deuteronomy, we start reading verse 6. If you read Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 5, you'd find out that these are basically covenant stipulations. So he's saying, you, you know, you guys entered into a covenant with me. He describes a lot of that in Deuteronomy 4. And the culmination is these are the stipulations of the covenant. And here's the things that you need to do to honor the covenant. So the point of the Ten Commandments, when you begin to read this story, is simply to say these are the things that you need to do to preserve your covenant relationship with God. So these are not primarily performance goals, but rather relational 
goals. The point of these things isn't that you get this achievement, you get a grade at the end, 92 out of 100 for the Ten Commandments for Rick. Yay! That's not the idea. These Ten Commandments are simply given so that we can preserve the covenant relationship that we've entered into with God. And in the context of the Old Testament, obviously they're, they're talking about a, a literal covenant that they entered into uh, there at the base of Mount, Mount Sinai. We live under a new covenant time, but in both cases the idea is really the same, that the goal here is to do the things we need to do in order to preserve the relationship we have with our God. So that's the first note about the Ten Commandments in general. Secondly, um, the Ten Commandments are designed for human flourishing. For some reason, we tend to think of these commandments as really restrictive. Let me tell you 10 things you cannot do. Ha, that'll teach you. And it's kind of like, ooh, okay. Um, And I'm like, that's not the image you have here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So if you just look to the end, we didn't read this far, but Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 29 says, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always. So he's referring now to the attitude of the people of Israel as Moses is giving this very sermon in effect. And said, Oh, that the heart you have right now would be the one you'd have forever. Why is he excited about them having this heart now? Because right now you have a heart to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Isn't that interesting? What's the point of keeping these commandments? That it goes well with you and your descendants forever. This is what I mean. The goal of the commandments is actually human flourishing. In in the, the fifth commandment that we read, honoring your father and your mother, it's repackaged right into that one. You honor your father and mother so that it may go well for you in the land. The commandments, in effect, are all about human flourishing. And by the way, If you doubt me, just like check out what happens when you break one. You you commit adultery and ask, how did this contribute to my happiness? Well, it probably made a mess out of things, both for you and whoever else was affected by your family. You know, lying. You know, one thing about lying, man, it makes your head hurt because you've got to remember what lies you told to whom. If you just tell the truth, all you got to do is talk about the reality that you live. You start lying, and you're like, okay, what did I say happened? Because I know what I said happened isn't what did happen, but I can't remember what I said happened. And I told this person that's what happened with that person. And all of a sudden, you realize, I'm not flourishing. I'm going crazy because I got I, I to gotta have a flow chart to track all my lies. Lying stinks. Stealing things. People steal things back, and you begin to realize, oh, yeah, you break these commandments you absolutely end up on the wrong end of the human flourishing equation. So yes, these commandments are given you to preserve a relationship with God, also just to help your life flourish, to make it be a good life as opposed to a bad life. The commands are also designed as a witness to the watching world. Um, so you, you see this pictured even here in this passage, even more so Deuteronomy chapter 4. So the part that kind of the lead up to this uh, chapter, let me just read this short section because it says it very well. He's referring to the commandment, says to keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, in the sight of the nations. For they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so the idea here is that you guys, Israel, you keep these commandments and the watching world looks at how you live and they go, wow, that's a good gig. Now, let me just 
probe that thought just a little bit because there's kind of a funny paradox built into this idea. On the one hand, if the laws that you have, the commands that you're keeping, look just like everybody else's, when you keep the commands, it's a yawn. Everyone else does the same thing. It's like, hey, what do you think about Israel? I think Israel's just like us. And you'll be right because all their commands are just like yours. So the commands have to be different and distinct, noticeably so. On the other hand, it doesn't work if everything that is wonderful you call terrible and everything that's terrible you call wonderful because all the people do is look at you and say, man, what's wrong with those guys? I don't know, but they're crazy. I have no interest in headed that way. So the thing that's tricky here is you realize your commandments have to be different, but they also have to be good. They have to look good when lived out in a way that appeals to the conscience somehow of the person who may not be part of the covenant community. Let me just take one example of how this might work. Uh, the, the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath. Um, I just want you to picture the ancient Near East, a land where you have large portions of the, of the population who are slaves. Um, pop quiz. If you're a slave, how many weeks of vacation do you get a year? Oh, right, zero. You don't get any vacation. Why? Because you're a slave, and that's just what the word means. You're owned by someone 24-7, 365, right? So you're a Babylonian slave. There is no UPS. So the guy in Babylon comes and says, hey, I want you to deliver this to my business partner up in Jerusalem. So whoosh, off you go. You land in Jerusalem on a Saturday. Got a UPS package to deliver here, you know, and nobody comes out. You keep knocking. Finally, someone says, what do you want? What do you need? And says, I'm here to deliver a package. Will you sign for it? He says, no, it's Sabbath. And you're like, what? It's Sabbath. What's Sabbath? It's a day off. Well, that's great, but I'm a slave and you're a slave. We don't get days off. Just sign for the package. He says, no, no, not in Israel. Everybody gets a day off. Did you hear that commandment? Not just you get a day off, but your manservant, your maidservant, your donkey gets a day off. And all the foreigners in your midst. So the foreigner UPS dude just showed up, UPS slave, knocking on your door. He's like, oh, you're a foreigner in your midst. Come on in. You get the day off too. And this guy's going, where do I apply to move to Israel? I mean, you guys actually get a day off every week? This is crazy good. And notice it's distinctively different. But somehow it appeals to something in the person's heart that says, that's right. There's something deeply right and deeply wonderful about this law. So we have to be distinct. We also have to be, in effect, attractive. But the point I would make out is the way we become attractive is just trusting God that the laws he gave us really are laws that are conducive to human flourishing. Just live it out. People will see us flourish and they'll nod there and say, wow, that looks like an upgrade. Where do I apply for being a Hebrew slave as opposed to a Babylonian slave? Um, so that's, that's particularly important, I guess, because right now I feel like I'm living in a culture where, where Christians all too often are getting more and more worried about making sure that we would never affirm a commandment would make the rest of the world feel uncomfortable. We want our commandments to fit in. It's like we want our commandments to have urban camouflage so no one will really notice that they're different. And I'm just telling you, that's not going to work. 
The point of these commandments is to be distinctively different yet attractively lived. We can screw it up either by making them indistinguishable from everybody else or by living them out badly. But the solution is never to downgrade the commandments, camouflage them, and make them look like, hey, we believe everything you guys do. Because we don't. We don't. And if we did, it would defeat the purpose of the commandments in terms of being a witness. Um, one final note on the commandments, just as you read through these, you realize that the, the first focus, the primary focus of these commandments is actually on the individual. It's about personal holiness and personal practice, much more so than it is about social policy. Now, that said, there's a bunch of things in here that have implications for social policy. But let me just point out that the beginning point is a set of things that are very much personal. Are you going to tell a lie? Are you coveting something to person? Are you going to commit murder or adultery? These sorts of things are things that start with you making a personal moral decision. Obviously, when you have the Ten Commandments in place, you're probably thinking, oh, and by the way, it's probably a good idea not to kill people in my society either. A prohibition against murder sounds like a good plan. Uh, but the point is, this is the thing that focuses first and foremost on the heart of the individual as a covenant keeper. Are you going to keep in relationship with me? And the focus begins right there at this level of, of personal morality. Okay, Ten Commandments in the Old Testament context. One of the other interesting things, since we're New Testament people, New Covenant people, it's always good to something. So how does that translate here? And in this case, one of the most important things you can do is stop and take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. Because that is Jesus teaching. The framework of that sermon is actually the Ten Commandments. So you see this repeated patterns that you have heard it said, and then he quotes the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, something like that. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. And then he gives his response to that teaching. So the, the Sermon on the Mount gives a really interesting look into what the Ten Commandments are really all about from the lens of Jesus, looking forward into the New Covenant time. And at the risk of oversimplifying, um, let me just say, I guess I'm running amok with botanical metaphors here for the moment, but... Um, the same way we're saying we're, we're supposed to be uh, coconuts that are planted and not carved. In effect, what Jesus does with the, uh, with the Ten Commandments is give you sort of a weed and feed lesson. Because he's basically saying, look, back to my metaphor about the coconut. He says, look, there's this coconut. You're going to plant it. But funny things happen. Other things grow around too. And I want you to be able to recognize what is growing up that's coconut and what's growing up that's something else. Because I want you to know what you should weed and what you should feed. That's the basic idea of the Ten Commandments. Here's how that teases out. Um, you guys have probably had this experience. For most of us, the problem is when, when a, a, a seed is small, when it's just sprouted, they're really hard to tell apart. If you just look at a seed or just look at the sprout, you're like, I don't know what this is. So what you tend to do is say, I don't know if this is the plant I planted or some weed that's growing in my garden. So you let it grow a little bit to tell what does it really look like. So then you go on vacation. 
And you grow for, you know, a couple of weeks to somewhere or another. You come back and you went on vacation, but no one else did. And your inbox is like full of three months worth of work. And so you're sitting down, you're doing all this stuff, and you forget about this little sprout that was sprouting up there. And then school begins again, and all of a sudden it's February, and you walk outside, and there's a five-foot-high fig tree growing in the middle of your azalea plant. And you're like, oh, I guess that was a fig tree. But now it's not just a fig sprout, it's a full-blown five-foot-eye fig tree. And if I'm conveying this with just a little bit of passion, let me just tell you, this happened to me, okay? (laughs) I want you to feel my pain. And the worst part is once it's become a five-foot-high fig tree, you try and pull the fig tree out and whoosh, there goes the azalea. And you're like, dang, I should have pulled that thing out when it was three inches high instead of five feet high. And so what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is give you a field guide to sprouts. He says, I know you know you shouldn't kill people, but I want you to think about this. What happens when you get angry at your brother and call him a fool? You know what that looks like when it grows up? It looks like murder. The sprout is anger. The tree is murder. I know you think you just have a few passions for this person over here. What does that look like when it grows up? It looks like adultery. But as a sprout, we just call it lust. And he's telling you, here's the guidelines to identify a sprout so that you can pull it out while it's still young. Because if you let it grow into the tree, it's going to get really ugly. I was an undergrad at Colorado State, and it's a big forestry school. And I have no, I wasn't a forestry major, but one of my roommates was, one of my friends. And uh, there's kind of a famous class that all of the, the forestry majors had to do, where I think the thing was that they had to be able to look at and identify properly every seed for every tree that grows in the state of Colorado. (laughs) <laughs> professors, I tell you. So anyhow, he's, he's sitting there studying for this big lab final where literally you walk in and there's, there's 50 seeds out of the 800 you were supposed to memorize and you have to go through and properly identify them. So I'm walking around campus before and he looks and said, oh, that's a Dutch elm. And I look down, there's this little tiny seed here. It looks like a little bit of a flying saucer with a little bulb there in the middle. And I go, how do you know that's like a Dutch elm instead of like an American elm or whatever? And he just looks at me like, you poor benighted soul. He says, well, if it's an American elm, the little hairs would be coming out of the seed part instead of the edges. And on the Dutch elm, it comes out of the edges instead of the seed. I mean, it's simple, Rick. And I'm like, hey, okay. And he could do this with like 500 different seeds. It was crazy. But you know, the cool thing about him was he knew what was growing in his garden. And Jesus wants us to know what we're growing in the garden of our heart before it gets so big as to do damage. And back to this thing with the coconut, we have mixed soil. So we say, ah, I heard this sermon that Rick preached and we're going to plant my coconut instead of just carve it. Good plan. But then you discover that someone snuck into your heart and they've planted a few other seeds as well. And then these things begin to grow. 
and you realize, how do I know which ones to feed and which ones to weed? Well, one of the big picture answers to that is the commandments, in that sense, are a valuable guide to say, look, the fruit, the, the thing that's coming up here is beginning to look like adultery or beginning to look like murder or beginning to look like covetousness. And it needs to be pulled out. And the law, in that sense, isn't your curving carving guide. It isn't the thing you're hoping will make you into the thing that you want. It's the thing that helps you know what part of you you're going to fertilize and what part of you you're going to um, weed. And I think that's the tricky thing is we realize our hearts are a pot of desires, some of which are good, some of which are bad. Some desires are disordered desires, which is really tricky because the thing we desire is perfectly good, but we desire at the wrong level. We desire it too much. It isn't a bad thing, but we over-desire it or we under-desire it. So we need right desires rightly ordered. And, and the law, the commandments, help you see this in the big picture, but Jesus doesn't serve in the mount. It's help you see it in the little picture with the seeds of the sprouts. Does that make sense? So that's a big, a big thing that we do with, with the law in light of what Jesus taught us. By the way, quick note on the feeding part. We've talked about the weeding part. You know, what does Jesus offer to help us say, okay, we know that this is actually a good desire. We want to fertilize it. And Jesus gives you all kinds of positive things in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He tells you, hey, um, you know, give, but don't let other people, don't blast a trumpet in front of you. Give for the sake of the person you're giving to. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And you realize, oh, I've got a little exercise here in giving that he offers. Let me give, but not trumpet it. Let me pray, but not be big and bodacious about it. Let me, if someone has something against me, let me seek to go be reconciled to that person. So there's all kinds of these little bright idea tips for feeding this little good desire you have. Yeah, and usually the, the first thing they does is have, act upon it. You have a small, ordinary good desire, act upon it. And when you act upon that well-formed desire, you find it growing. You find it fertilized. You find it becoming stronger as opposed to becoming weaker. So that's a big thing that Jesus does. Another thing you find just generally in the Sermon on the Mount is this general posture of leaning towards love and leaning away from judgment. So particularly when you begin to think about other people coming out of this, we sort of lean towards love. This person's going to ask you to go for one mile. Go ahead and go for two. They want your, your, uh, your, your shirt in effect. Give them your coat as well. Uh, go the extra mile. Be generous to these people. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So he offers a law of love to us. And he also says, lean away from judgment. This is the passage of Sermon on the Mount where we get the famous thing about, look, you've got a moat. You see a moat or you see a you know, tiny speck in the eye of your, your neighbor there. Uh, and you want to go pull it out. It says, you know, the first thing you want to do is get the log out of your own eye. Judge not that you won't be judged. You're going to be judged by the state and standard you appear to others. So in effect, he's giving you a lean away from judging others. Relative to other people, your first thing is lean into loving them, not judging them. Now, clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, you never walk out of that stream like, hey, who cares about moral issues? Jesus really amps up the moral issues. But as I pointed out at the outset, his first concern is your own practice. The goal of morality is not that it be exported. <laughs> It's for internal consumption. 
And so he's saying, I want you to be able to practice these things, and I want you to give love to them and, and downplay the judgment. Don't go worrying about what do we pluck from everybody else. Okay, so that's a big, uh, big picture thing on this. One, one final note on this, just because I'm just running ragged on my garden metaphors, and I just can't help myself. So... Um, <laughs> Once we get this, there's something in us when we get this going around, oh, there's bad things out there. We're like, yeah, this, this you know, weed has come out. Let me go kill it. So you spray it with Roundup or whatever you do to kill your weeds, and, and it withers. And so imagine your backyard has a bunch of weeds in it, and you've been a good Christian and say, we've got to get all the weeds out. And so you've gotten all the weeds out, you've sprayed Roundup out, and you're looking back at your backyard. What does your backyard look like? Dead weeds. Okay, we could probably do better, Right? So then you think, oh, yeah, good idea, Rick. So wherever there's a, a, a weed, I'll plant a flower instead. And now when we look at our backyard, what do you see? Flowers. Flowers, a flower garden that's designed by who? Weeds. Oh, because everywhere you planted a flower was where you found the weed. And the one thing you never ask yourself is, what should the garden look like? All you were worried about was the weeds. And once you found that weeds that are dead or ugly, said, let me plant a pretty plant where the weed was. Who's running the whole show? The weeds. And this is what I would like to argue, this whole kind of coconut metaphor I'm giving you here. Well, you could imagine the coconut grove metaphor, the tree metaphor and the forest metaphor, where you start and ask, what's my vision for the garden? That you develop a theological imagination for your life and the life of yours around you in the community that you're a part of. And say, that's the garden that I'm growing. And of course, if a weed of injustice shows up or a weed of impiety or a weed of false worship, we want to pull those weeds out, but we want to have a vision of the garden we're actually growing because otherwise, the weeds are still running the show. And all it does is it looks better because you replaced the weed with a flower, but the weeds still decided what was going to be grown where. And I would like to say that the vision that we want to have for the gospel is one that informs our theological imagination for the entire world in which we live. How do we make this place all honoring to Jesus, top to bottom, side by side? What's planted, where it's planted, why it's planted? So, Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels. One final note that I would like to make about this is a couple of reflections on how we go bad with this. And let me first make an observation that one of the fruits of either faithful Old Testament practice or the New, New Covenant practice of this is always the fruit of making society look better, expunging something and replacing with the good. We've just run through that metaphor. If I were to read through the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophets were covenant policemen. They basically got, you're supposed to be covenant people. And when you do things that are contrary to the covenant, I blow the whistle. I say, hey, wait a minute. What about that? What about what? What about that? So you can read the Old Testament prophets. It's the largest portion of the Old Testament. There's a pile of Old Testament prophets. And if you want it shrunk down to like the, the Reader's Digest condensed version, generally speaking, they're going to complain about three things. They'll complain about idolatry. They'll complain about adultery. And they'll complain about injustice. So when I'm talking about idolatry, I'm talking about false worship, worshiping false gods or worshiping the real God falsely. Um, and so they want pure worship. 
when we're talking about adultery, we're talking about misplaced human desire. So it may be literally adultery. It may be other forms. Here you have also adultery mentioned, but also covetousness. So misplaced desire for things um, and a lack of personal holiness. Um, And then the third thing you see the prophets talking a lot is injustice. And the idea that the society we build should be a society that is just, that in our language we might call it social justice, that, that we don't oppress people, but rather that people find liberation in the society in which you have. So we have this kind of opposition to idolatry, adultery, and injustice. The idea is we're going to have pure worship, we're going to have uh, pure uh, practice, you know, personal holiness, and we'll have a well-formed society. Here's the trick. The fruit of the gospel is all of the things I just mentioned. Pure worship, personal holiness, and social justice. That's the fruit of the gospel. But the gospel itself is none of those things. The gospel itself is Christ crucified. And I no longer live a life I live in the flesh. I no longer live by myself, but by faith in the Son of God who gave himself, who loved me and gave himself for me. That idea that we die to self and live to Christ, we're transformed so that we are conformed in our hearts to the standard of teaching to which we're committed. And the consequence of being so formed is that you have personal holiness, that you have right and faithful worship practices, and that you work in your society and your context for socially just practices, that you treat people fairly. You do not oppress the poor or the fatherless or the wilderness or the sojourner in your midst. But that is not the gospel. That's the fruit of the gospel. And here's the tricky thing. When you start shooting for the fruit, you usually miss the whole package. If you shoot for the tree, you get the tree and the fruit included in the package. So here's how this tends to play out. We say, oh, the gospel gives us personal holiness. So we, we, we do what I call uh, doing gospel just is-isms. The gospel just is, and fill in the blank. The gospel just is personal holiness. So you, you start going down that road and you say, oh, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, I won't take the, the Lord's name in vain. Okay, that's good. Oh, but what happens if, like, I pray in Jesus' name but I'm not really praying for Jesus' will. Is that taking Lord's name? Oh, that is taking. So you have a commandment 3A. And then we add to that commandment 3B. And you be, there's, you know, shorthands for who Jesus' name is. Oh, I don't want to say that word. And so we, we keep adding and adding and adding to our collection of commandments. Oh, my gosh. By the time you're done with that, well, by the time you're done that, you have the Pharisees, right? And they're all wound up in knots about, oh, mint and cumin. They grow like weeds in the ancient Near East, but they also can be used to flavor your food. So that's actually like a benefit to you. So rather than just pulling those weeds, you need to tithe on those weeds that are growing outside your house. Okay, we'll add one more to the list of commandments. And you can just see that process multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And it never ends with a sense of liberation. Modern times right now, one of the big things, and I, you know, will probably step on some toes as I say this, but we do the exact same thing with social justice, right? The gospel just is social justice. 
The fruit of the gospel really is. And then we do things like we abolish uh, slavery. I'm a fan of that. Good plan. We abolish uh, school segregation. We do these sorts of things. And we hope that that will solve the problem. But we realize we got rid of slavery. We got rid of school segregation. And we still have racists. We still have people who don't treat either person fairly. People who hate people based on their fill in the blank. What are we going to do? And I was just reading an article about hooped earrings and how white women wearing hoop earrings is an act of oppression and all these other kinds of things. And there's reasons why people say that. I get those, actually. But here's my point. This is going to get down to really low-level diminishing returns, isn't it? And we keep picking and picking and picking and hoping that the big benefit we got when we did something like slavery will get the same thing we need because the only thing we have an eye for is making a new social policy to monitor for more of the social justice and on this goes. And of course, you can do the same thing with devoted worship. Oh, I need to be and not do. And so you begin to say, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to live with Jesus and I'm not going to be distracted by all the doing. Or we do the monastic retreat thing. We have Simon of Stylides who sat on top of a pole for 40 years, I think. They ran food up and down to him. And I, I'm just like, where, where does this trip end? And all I would like to do is say it doesn't end in a good place. If you lose the gospel first, you lose the blessings of the gospel and usually every other fruit that it will give you. If you keep the gospel first, you open up the opportunity for all the rest of that fruit to grow in your garden. And I understand that all that fruit doesn't always grow every time, that sometimes the fruit has marks and blemishes on it. Sometimes rats eat the food. Got it. But I'm just saying that if you don't keep the first thing first, you will never open up the door for the possibility of that fruit. So the core thing here is to stop and say, you know what? Christians aren't carved. They're grown. I don't carve myself into the shape of the gospel. I drop my heart in the soil that God has prepared for me, and I die to self and I live to him. And as I live my life in Christ, things will merge out of me that I'm going to fertilize and amplify. There'll be things that grow out of that soil that I'm going to have to weed and pull. And the fruit of me doing that and others around my community doing that is we end up creating a community of holiness, of right worship, and of justice. But if we don't start in the right place, we'll never end up with the garden that we're really seeking. Does that make sense? And that's my plea that we keep in effect the first things of the gospel first. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible gift of the gospel. <laughs> in some ways, I can't believe I can even stand here and say with a straight face that the key thing we need to do is not follow a law, but rather just throw ourselves fully into you and let you live your life through us. And we thank you for the promises you give that you will do that. And Lord, give us the grace to walk in those. Let us set aside our carving knives and instead allow you to grow ever fuller within our lives that we might manifest you ever more clearly to the watching world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.